the book of Genesis, chapter 15, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this book, and particularly in this season of our life as a church, we are studying the life of Abraham. And what I'd like to do is read the first six verses of Genesis 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of those provided in the seats in front of you. Our passage this morning is on page 10. Page 10. So Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Well, this morning we come to a very special verse in the Old Testament, Genesis 15 and verse 6. This verse is quoted three times directly in the New Testament, and yet more important than how often it's quoted in the New Testament is where this particular verse is quoted in the New Testament. For when the Apostle Paul, in the book of Romans, is laying out the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way of salvation. When Paul is trying to lay out the very heart of of Romans, the very heart of Christianity, the very heart of the gospel, it is to this verse that he looks and that he quotes in Romans 4. When in the book of Galatians, Paul is striving with all his might to help these churches in Galatia to understand the true way of being made right with God. It is to this verse that he looks, this verse that he quotes and brings their attention to. Even the Apostle James, when he wants to show the importance of good works and how real faith must be accompanied by good works. Nevertheless, he quotes Genesis 15.6 as evidence that faith is the way of salvation. In other words, this verse is incredibly precious because it shows us what is required of us that we might be saved. The issue here is justification. Everyone say justification. Justification is that act of God by which He declares sinners righteous in His sight. Justification is our only hope. In order for us to be with God and to have heaven and to escape hell and to know the peace and the joy for which we were created, we must be right in God's eyes. We are sinners who must be seen as righteous. We must be counted righteous or we have no hope. 
And the glorious teaching of this verse is that our God is a God who justifies sinners, who counts them righteous in His sight. And what does He require of us? That we might be justified, that we might have our sins forgiven, that we might be right in God's eyes. It requires faith. So let us pay careful attention this morning. And let us be thankful for this verse which God has given to us. My outline this morning is very simple. It's three questions that I want to try and answer. Uh, Number one, why do people need to be justified? Number two, how was Abram justified? And number three, what was the object of Abram's faith? And so I want to jump in with question number one. Why do people need to be justified? And I know most of you already know these things, but... If we don't have them in mind, Genesis 15, 6 will mean little to us. And so, by way of reminder, let me point out three reasons why you and I and all people on planet Earth desperately need to be justified. Number one is that our God is a holy lawgiver. There is no unrighteousness in our God. Our God is perfect. Our God is pure. Our God is blameless and without sin. Our God is light. And in God there is no darkness at all. God has never told a lie. God has never been unfaithful. God has never used His ultimate power for anything but good. And not only that, but our God loves all that is good with an infinite love. And he hates all that is evil with an infinite hatred. You and I can be tempted because we do not hate evil the way we ought to. When we are tempted with a sin, there is something in our flesh that is attracted towards that sin, that is drawn towards that sin. There is, there is an affection in our heart towards that sin, and thus we are tempted. James 1.13 says that our God cannot be tempted. There is nothing in him that has any affection towards any sin, for he is pure and he is holy. His hatred of sin is so great, and God's understanding is so perfect that there has never been a moment in his eternal existence when he even considered acting in a wicked way. There is no attraction in God towards sin. There is only repulsion. Sin in the sight of God only stirs up His holy anger and His righteous disgust. God is passionate about His love for goodness, which is why He loves His Son so much. And God is passionate about His hatred of evil, which is why He hates our sin so much. Because God loves us, Because God loves man, because God created man in His own image, God has given us laws. He wants us to know good from evil. And He expects us to imitate Him in loving good and hating evil. He has told us that He is the true God. That it is He that we are to honor and not false gods. And He established this as a law, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before Me. And He has called us to love the worship of our true and glorious God and to hate the foolish worship of those things which are not gods at all. 
God has called us to love His patterns of worship and not to construct our own. He has called us to love His name and not to use it in vain. He has called us to love His good day, the Lord's day, and to embrace it and find spiritual refreshment in it. He's called us to love our parents and to honor them. He's called us to love life and therefore not to murder. He's called us to embrace this wonderful gift called marriage and the precious union of a man and a woman and not to dishonor this gift through sexual immorality. He has called us to be thankful for the things of this world and not to steal what has been entrusted to others. He's called us to be passionate about truth, to love truth, and therefore to hate dishonesty. He has called us to find our contentment in Him and all that He has given us, and therefore to hate all traces of covetousness. And all of these commandments, these ten commandments, He gave to us for our good, that we might share His love of goodness, that we might share His hatred of evil. And if we embraced God's law, if we kept God's law, eternal joy and eternal peace with God forever would be ours. But we have been very foolish. And we have been very wicked. Our forefather, Abram, was very foolish. He refused to trust the good God that created him. He refused to heed God's word. And we continue in Adam's footsteps. We as humanity have not shared God's love of goodness. No, no, no. We have rushed headlong towards sin. From the moment we have any sense of right and wrong, which is why we are still in diapers, we are already choosing to do wrong. We have corrupt hearts. We have wicked hearts who are attracted to evil and care more about the pleasures of sin than the God who made us. We are like Pinocchio, ignoring the wise, loving words of the One who made us, running away, thinking that we'll be fine on our own apart from Him, indulging in all sorts of senseless acts. And in the end, unless our Maker comes to rescue us, we will bring ourselves to our own deaths. And we cannot assume that God is going to rescue us. For we have made ourselves offensive to Him. And when we do die, we will stand before God and He will not stand before us just as our Creator. He will stand before us as our Judge. And everything within God's holy heart screams that our sin must be punished. We have trampled His glory. We have trampled His commands. We have desecrated all that is good and sacred and true. An eternity in hell is what we deserve. Suppose I assault a stranger in the street. I deserve to be punished. Suppose that stranger that I assaulted was a police officer. Well, suddenly I truly more greatly deserve to be punished. I have done a more heinous crime. What if that stranger that I assaulted was the governor of our state? Or what if the stranger that I assaulted was the president of the United States? What would the appropriate punishment be? 
Well, friends, the one that we have sinned against is neither the governor nor the president. He is God Almighty who is worthy, inherently worthy of all honor and all worship and all obedience and all affection. And if you have not been justified, if you have not been made right with God, then you stand under God's just condemnation and you will go to hell. Do you believe that? God owes us nothing but judgment. And yet here we have a man named Abram. A man who's a sinner just like us. A man who deserves hell just like us. And we find God counting this man righteous in his sight. We see God wiping away Abram's sin. We see Abram being made right with God. How in the world can God do this? Well, God can justify Abram, and God can justify anyone else He freely chooses because He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for their sins. The Bible tells us that before the foundations of the earth, God wrote a book of life in which He wrote down the names of every person that He in His immense mercy would save. He then made a covenant with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus would go and bear the punishment that these deserved. Then God would raise Jesus up from the dead. And then with all authority and power given to King Jesus, Jesus would would go through His people, through His church, and save people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. God owes everyone hell, but in His great mercy and out of love for His Son, God has chosen to save a people, a kingdom, a bride. And so we read in Romans 8.30 that those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Justin, am I one of these people? Is it possible that me, with all of my sin, could be one of those who are justified before God, made right with Him, my sins forgiven. How can I know if my sins have been forgiven? And the answer is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For this is how we are made right with God, by faith and by faith alone. And that's the answer to our second question. How was Abram justified? How was this sinner made right before God? And we see it very clearly in verse 6, don't we? It's, it's very plain. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. That is, Abram believed the Lord, and God counted his faith as righteousness. Passage after passage after passage in the Scriptures teach us that we are made right with God through faith. Romans 3, 23-25, the Mount Everest of the Bible. For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. In other words, Paul is saying that everything that must be done for sinners to be made righteous before God has been done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God puts forward the Lord Jesus Christ for us as a great gift to be received by faith. He holds out to us salvation in Christ. And our only responsibility is to receive the gift, to entrust ourselves, God's sweet salvation. Imagine a man with a lethal wound. And imagine that a doctor has graciously put together an ointment that would bring healing to this man's wound and save his life. Here is the man and his lethal wound. Here is the ointment. But he will not be healed until the ointment is applied to the wound. Well, so also, here we are as sinners. And here is this great salvation in Jesus Christ that must be applied to us. How do we apply all that Christ did on the cross to our condition? Through faith. It is faith that grabs a hold of the Lord Jesus Christ and brings Him to ourself so that our souls are saved and our sins are forgiven. Faith is the key. Romans 5.1, very clear. Paul, speaking to Christians, says, Therefore, since we, Christians, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see how clear it is? Since we have been justified by faith, our Lord Jesus Christ is the way of peace between us and God, and He becomes ours by faith. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person, we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. So dear friends, here is the question of life or death. This is the question of heaven or hell. Do you believe? Do you have real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have a genuine, God-wrought, saving faith burning in your heart this morning? And we have to be careful. Because there is such a thing as false faith. The Bible speaks of several different types of counterfeit faith that is not wrought by God and it does not save but it sure can deceive. The faith that God places into the hearts of His people is different from counterfeit faith in several ways. Let me quickly mention three. First, counterfeit faith acknowledges the truth of God's Word, but real faith goes further 
and rests in it. You see, ever since the days of the Bible, there have been those who claimed that all it means to have faith is to acknowledge with your mind that the thing said in the Bible is true. If you can assent, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, I believe all those facts are true. That's faith, according to some. But the Bible does not describe saving faith in that way. Saving faith not only believes that God's Word is true, but it goes further and actually rests on those truths. Many, many people claim to believe the truths of the Bible while their hearts are far from God. God's truth does not rest mightily upon them. God's truth does not make a difference in their lives. When we were in Romania, we saw hundreds of people who claimed to believe the facts of the Bible while they continue to rest in their own good deeds to make them right before God. I remember sharing with one man from James 2.19 where it says, You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And we explained to him that even the demons know that the word of God is true. But that alone cannot and will not do anything to save. We must not only believe it is true, we must rest upon it. Real faith calls upon Christ. Real faith throws yourself upon Christ. The woman who had been sick for many years, the woman who had gone to many doctors and had found no real help, she might have known in her mind, Jesus is powerful enough to save me. But knowing that in her mind did not heal her. It was when she acted upon that knowledge and went to Christ and touched His garment, that is when she was healed. And that is a picture of saving faith. It's one thing to believe that a boat can get you safely to the other side of the river. It's another thing to actually get in the boat. And I fear there are many who know lots of good things about Jesus up here. But they've never truly come to rest in Him, in their souls. A second kind of counterfeit faith is a kind of faith that is not accompanied by genuine good works. This is what James is arguing when he quotes our verse in his epistle. James is arguing that real salvation is by faith, but you will know that it is there by its genuine good works. Counterfeit faith, false faith, may or may not be accompanied by works. One person may claim to believe on Jesus, but the fact that this person doesn't actually do what Christ says, the fact that this person doesn't go to learn from Christ and His Word, doesn't sit at Christ's feet as a disciple and and ask Jesus to teach him or her, the fact that this person does not live in accordance to what Christ has taught shows that this person's faith is not real. Faith by itself... If it does not have works, is dead. James 2.17 So we must examine ourselves to see if there is real evidence of works in our lives. The problem is this. Just as there is such a thing as counterfeit faith, there's also such a thing as counterfeit works. You see, genuine good works spring from genuine faith. 
so that we come to church and we care for our families and we talk about Christ with others and we seek to care for the poor and for the oppressed because we have found sweet security. We have found peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have found great joy in belonging to Christ and these are things that our Savior that we love has called us to do. We love our Jesus And because we care about His glory, because we care about His purposes, we want to do these things. Moreover, because we trust Him, we believe that He knows what is best for us. And so if He calls us to do these things, it is good and right for us to do them. Genuine good works spring out of a heart that has that sort of faith. Counterfeit faith will sometimes produce a counterfeit kind of good works. Well, you're not doing your good works out of love for Jesus. You're doing these things to make you feel better about yourself before God. Deep down, you feel that by doing these good works, God will think better of you. You're hoping that you won't be such a bad person before God and that your sins might be forgiven because you've done these good things. You're trying to add works to your faith as a grounds for your justification. And friends, this kind of faith producing those kinds of works will not save. So you can have two Christians, professed Christians, coming to church and doing all the same kinds of good works, but one has real faith in their heart and they're doing these things out of genuine love for Christ and the other is trying to add works to their faith and trying to make themselves look right before God. And that faith will not save. For Christ is sufficient, folks. He does not need our works added to Him. We are saved by faith and faith alone. Jesus is our hope and our only hope. He is enough. He is sufficient. If we try and add anything to Jesus of our own, all we are showing is that we are not truly confident in Him and what He has done. Real salvation is by sola fide, faith alone, and it will always be accompanied by genuine good works springing from a heart that trusts Christ and loves Christ. Finally, a third kind of counterfeit faith is the kind that does not last. And there are places in Abram's life where we might begin to wonder, is his faith going to last? Or is he going to ultimately prove that his faith is not from God? Abram has some big stumbles, doesn't he, in his life. Abram has some big falls, but ultimately his faith perseveres. And this is one of the clearest ways to tell whether the faith in our hearts is a God-wrought saving faith. The saving faith that God places in the hearts of His people is a faith that lasts. A faith that perseveres. It holds on during trials. It clings to Christ during tribulations. Real faith is not a one-time only event. Genesis 15.6 is not Abram's conversion. Abram first believed way back in Genesis 12. Rather, what we are being reminded of here is that Abram is a man who is walking by faith. The true believer walks by faith. The true believer lives by faith. It characterizes who we are and it lasts. Real quickly, turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 8.
Look at verse 31 with me. John 8, verse 31. And I want you to notice who Jesus is talking to at the beginning of verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him. So we have our Savior speaking not to those who have rejected Him. This is Jesus speaking to those who have heard Him teach and have believed what they have heard Him teach. Now listen to what Jesus says to these Jews who have believed in Him. Jesus says, If you abide in My Word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Catch that? If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. The true disciples of Jesus are those who abide, those who last, those who persevere. Remember the parable of the four soils. Remember how there was seed that fell on rocky soil. And Jesus said that this was the picture of one who hears the Word of God and immediately receives it with joy. And yet this person has no real root, no genuinely changed heart that's going to sustain this faith. And so though this person endures in faith for a while, when tribulation or when persecution comes on account of God's Word, Jesus said this person immediately falls away. Jesus told of a person who was like a seed sown among thorns. This person professed faith in Jesus Christ, but that faith was choked out by the cares of this world and by the deceitfulness of riches. Real, God-wrought faith perseveres. If God began this work of faith in our hearts, He will complete it and He will make it perfect. True Christians do not have perfect faith. In fact, often our faith is very weak. But if our faith is from God, it will hold on through every storm. Jesus said in Matthew 10.22, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And Paul said to the Christians in Philippi, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So how are we saved? We are saved by a real faith. A faith that is accompanied by good works. A faith that perseveres to the end of our lives. And a faith that not only acknowledges the truth of God's Word, but rests upon it and clings to Christ Himself. And that brings us to our final question. We'll close with this. What was the object of Abram's faith? What was Abram believing in that made him right before God? What was he trusting in? Well, the first answer is that Abram was trusting in the promise that God had just made him, right? Abraham, he trusts what God has just spoken. In verse 1, God says to Abram, I'm going to give you a great reward. But Abram's already rich in worldly standards. He's already got much more than most of the people around him, but he doesn't have a son, and so he comes to God and, and he says, Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Eliezer was a servant in his house whom Abram was considering making his appointed heir. Abram goes on in verse 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, God responds in verse 4 by saying, No, 
This man will not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And then he says, Abram, go outside. Look at the sky. Look at the stars. And start counting. Now, I wonder whether God gave him time to actually start. I wonder if, we actually, if there was actually a few moments there where Abram is, is trying to count. We don't know. But certainly he would not have been able to do it for long before he realized that they were uncountable. And God says to him, so shall your offspring be. And we're told, and Abram believed. So God spoke a promise to Abram. And Abram believed God's word. Abram's faith is not perfect. At times it is very weak. In the very next chapter, Abram will take his wife's servant and seek to have a child with her. Rather than trusting God enough to do things God's way, Abram will seek to try and help God out. But Abram's faith is real. Let this offer a little bit of encouragement to us who sometimes feel that our faith is barely recognizable. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, my faith is so weak? How we wish our faith was stronger. How much better it would be for us How much better it would be for the people we love. How much better it would be for the glory of God if our faith was stronger. We should long for strong faith. But even as we fight for strong faith, let us take comfort in knowing that even those who have the weakest of faith that is genuinely given by God will find their way into heaven and their faith will be made perfect. Later, we will see Abram as a man of strong faith, willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar because he believes that God is capable of raising Isaac from the dead. Men and women of strong faith don't start out that way. They start out with little faith, and it takes time, and it takes much trials for their faith to grow and become strong. And some in God's providence are saved, and they don't live much longer after they're saved. And their faith never has much time to grow. Other believers experience fewer trials than others, and their faith does not develop as much as is perhaps typical of other believers. Moreover, God is sovereign over all these things, and sometimes for His good purposes, He causes one Christian to grow in faith so much more quickly than another Christian. But dear friends, our salvation, thank God, does not depend on the amount of our faith. Now, our happiness in this life, our usefulness to the kingdom of God, that does depend on whether our faith is strong. Strong faith is a good thing. We should desire it. But ultimately, what matters is that we have faith at all. And sometimes we will go through tough times when it will be hard to see. But if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Some of you have family members and friends that you are concerned about. You wonder if deep down in their souls there is a small trace of genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the kinds of things that only God Himself can know. But if at times we do think we see a trace of trust in Christ and these we love, then we do have reason for hope. For everyone who has weak faith today will have a faith made perfect on the day they die, or the day Christ returns. Well, I chased a little rabbit trail there. Let me come back and close this way. The big point was that Abram's faith 
was in the word that God had spoken to him. So also our faith must be in the precious promises that God has made to us. Promises like John 3.16, Whosoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. We ought to believe that promise, and we ought to throw ourselves upon that promise. And yet ultimately, the answer to the question, what is the object of Abram's faith, is this. Abram believed on God himself. Abraham placed his trust and his reliance and his very life upon God himself. Genesis 15, 6, And he believed the Lord. Dear friends, at the very bottom of everything that we've talked about this morning is this, Do you trust God? Are you willing to entrust yourself to His mercy? Everyone who comes to God and gives themselves to Him will find that He is a refuge and a fortress and a God mighty to save. God has revealed Himself to us in Jesus Christ. We trust in God by trusting in Jesus Christ. In your heart, have you given yourself to Christ? If you know lots of facts about Jesus, that is a good thing. But that is not nearly enough. Have you gone to Christ in prayer and given yourself to Him? Do you live each day as one who belongs to Jesus? Has your faith been accompanied by works like being baptized in His name or being counted among His people in a local church? You and I do not deserve this precious, precious offer of salvation. But today Jesus Christ stands ready and willing to save you if you will run to Him in faith. If you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be counted to you as righteousness. For Christ's righteousness will become yours, and you will be right in the eyes of God. Turn from living your own life your own way, trampling God's law, loving your will more than God's perfect will, hate your life of sin, and run to Jesus as fast as you can for forgiveness. Look to Him to teach you how to live well. Look to Him to begin a work of making you a different person, a godly person. Look to Christ in real saving faith for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in that way will truly and utterly and certainly be saved. Let's pray. And so as we now, each of us, go and talk to our God, the question we should be asking is this, do we have the faith that Abraham had? Are we resting in God's promises the way Abram was? Have we thrown ourselves upon our Savior? Examine your heart. Test yourself. What does the evidence say? Is Christ your all in all? Does He truly have your heart above all else? If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever or you're not sure where you stand before God, you take this moment and you run to Jesus. Confess your desperate need of Him. Give yourself to Him in prayer.
And once this service is over, you come talk to me and I'll talk to you about what it means to follow Christ through baptism and walking as a, as a Christian for the rest of us. How should we be affected by this message this morning? What should fill our hearts as we think about these glorious truths that we've heard? Let's all take a few moments. Let's all talk quietly with God. And then in just a few moments, we'll stand together and respond in song. Let's pray.